This week on the show, we cover the mass extinction of Unix workstations in detail. We can also determine who can log in to an SSH server, it turns out. Uh, factors when considering FreeBSD versus Linux packages, a nice comparison I wrote myself, I have to say. A visual guide to SSH tunnels, harvesting the noise while it's fresh, Busty the jail manager, a nice introductory tutorial, and more. This episode of BSD now. BSD Now, episode 494, Unix Workstation Extinction. Recorded on the 3rd of February, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find the online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show, we have a couple of requests for new microphones, for example. Then check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash bsdnow. It is. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Oeschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Yeah, welcome. We have prepared a nice little but definitely fun-packed episode for you, starting off with headlines about the mass extinction of Unix workstations. Yeah, so we have a, a story here on osnews.com. It was written by Tom Howlader. I thought it was Tom. I'm sorry, Tom. Oh, T-H-O-M. Yeah, I mean, that's how my name should be spelled. But I guess when I was four, I went with the Is easier way to write it down. Well, it's Thomas, so it should be T H O M. Very abbreviated. Nobody, nobody cares. It's funny, like for for a long time they called you Mister T. Talking about our life for a long time, like on paperwork, it would say Tom, and I got worried because like my um, helicopter survival certification was for Tom Jones rather than Thomas, and I was worried for ages that they just wouldn't let me on an oil rig. They'd be like, "That's a different person," but yeah, no, it, it, it is fine. Um, <laughs> that's from the past. Okay, so so Tom writes, back in the 90s and very early 2000s, a whole market segment of computers existed that we don't really talk about anymore. The Unix workstation. They were non-x86 machines running one of the many commercial Unix variants and were used for the very high end of computing. They were expensive, unique, different, and quite incredibly over-engineered. Countless companies made and sold these Unix workstations. SGI was a big player in the market with their fancy colorful machines with MIPS processors running IRIX. There was also some microsystems selling more powerful UltraSpark machines running Solaris. Industry legend DEC sold alpha machines running Digital Unix, later renamed True64 Unix, when DEC was acquired by Compaq in 98. IBM, of course, also sold Unix workstations powered by their PowerPC architecture and AIX operating system. As x86 became ever more powerful and versatile, and with the rise of, uh, of Linux as a capable capable Unix replacement and the adoption of the NT-based versions of Windows, the days of the Unix workstations were numbered. A few years into the new millennium, virtually all traditional Unix vendors had ended production of their workstations, and in some cases even their associated architectures, with a lackluster, lackluster collective effort to move over to Intel's Itanium, which didn't really go anywhere. Approaching roughly 2010, all the Unix workstations had disappeared. Developments of MIPS, UltraSpark, Alpha, and others had all wound down, with a few exceptions. The various commercial Unix variants started to languish in extended support purgatory, and by now they were all pretty much dead, save for Solaris. Users and industries moved on to x86 on the hardware side, and Linux, Windows, and in some cases macOS on the software side. 
I've always been fascinated by Unix workstations. They were this mysterious, unique computers running software that was entirely alien to me, and they were impossibly expensive. Over the years, I've owned exactly one of these machines, a Sun Ultra 5 running Solaris 9, and I remember enjoying that little machine greatly. I was a student living in a tiny apartment with not much money to spare, but back in those days, you couldn't load a single page on an online auction website without stumbling over piles of Ultra 5s and other Unix workstations. They were cheap and plentiful. Even as my financial situation improved and money wasn't short anymore, my apartment was still far too small to buy even more computers, especially since Unix workstations tend to have big noise, tend to be big and noisy. In the fast forward to the 2020s, however, and everything's changed. My house has plenty of space, and I even have my own dedicated office for work and computer nonsense. So I've got more than enough room to indulge and buy Unix workstations. It was time to get back into the saddle. But I soon realized that times have changed. Over the past few years, I have come to learn that if you want to get into buying, using, and learning from Unix workstations today, you run into various problems which can be roughly filled into three main categories. Hardware availability, operating system availability, and third-party software availability. I'll work through all of three of these and give some explanations that I've encountered, most of them based on the purchase of a Unix workstation from a vendor I haven't mentioned yet, Hewlett Packard. Hardware availability, a tulip for a house. The first place most people would go in order to buy a classic Unix workstation is eBay. Everyone's favorite auction site and online marketplace is filled with all kinds of Unix workstations from the 80s all the way up to the final machines from the early 2000s. You'll soon notice, however, that pricing seems to have gone absolutely, pardon my Gaelic, absolutely batshit insane. Are you interested in a Sun Ultra 45 from 2005 without any warranty and excluding shipping? That'll be anywhere from 1,500 to 2,500 euros. Or are you more into SGI looking to buy a 175 megahertz Indigo 2 from the mid 90s? Better pony up at least um, 1,250 euros. Something as underpowered as a Sun Ultra 10 from 98 will run uh, for anything between 700 and 1,300 euros. Getting something more powerful like an SGI fuel, forget about it. As an aside from this Tom, the Tom Jones, the author of the article, I bought a 386 last year and I managed to pick one up for like 250 pounds, but people were selling them for a thousand, which is a lot of money for a 386, like a, a computer from the 90s. Wild. Anyway, back to the article. Going to refurbishers won't help you much either. Just these past few days, I was in contact with a refurbisher here in Sweden who was charging over 4,000 euros for a Sun Ultra 45. For a US perspective, a, refurbisher, a refurbisher like Unix HQ has quite a decent selection of machines, but be ready to shell out $2,000 for an IBM IntelliStation Power 285 running AIX, $1,300 for a Sunblade 2500, or $2,000 for an SGI Fuel these prices are without shipping or possible customs fees. It will come as no surprise that shipping these machines is expensive. Shipping a Unix workstation from the US where supply is uh, relatively ample to Europe costs more than the computer itself, easily doubling your total costs. On top of that, there's the crapshoot lottery of custom fees, which depending on the customs official's mood can really just be about anything. I honestly have no idea why pricing has skyrocketed as much as it has. Machines like these were far, far cheaper five to ten years ago, but it seems like something happened that pushed them up. Quite a few of them are definitely not so rare, so I doubt it's rarity that is the cause. Demand can't exactly be high either, so I doubt there's so many people buying these that they're forcing the price to go up. 
I do have a few theories such as some machines being absolutely required in specific niche somewhere and sellers just sitting on them until one breaks and must be replaced. In the end, the right price is whatever people are willing to pay, but I have a feeling we're looking at some serious chew-up mania here. Unix workstations are pretty much scrap metal and have no real use other than for enthusiasts and the odd collector here and there. I'm saddened there are apparently enough of us who are ready to pay through the nose for what are especially what are essentially loud paperweights with power cords. In the end, I got insanely lucky, and in April 2021, I managed to score a HP Visualize C3750 PA Risk workstation Ooh. for a mere 70 euros. A price I'm still not entirely sure wasn't a mistake. The professional eBay seller I bought it from also seems to have realized he made a mistake somewhere because it looked like it fa it, it took a lot of back and forth and pressure to get him to actually actually ship the computer. After he finally shipped it and arrived on my doorstep, I apologized to the mailwoman profusely since she had to log, log that thing around, and I was happy to finally have in my hands this originally expensive piece of hardware. And then things got worse. Operating system availability. A pirate's life for me! The C3750 I bought was entirely designed HP UX, Hewlett Packard's commercial Unix variant. Sadly, the machine shipped without the software, either installed or in plastic, so I had to somehow get my hands on the installation media. This is when I discovered just how hard it is to get your hands on some of the commercial Unix variants. In my naivete, I just assumed I'd be able to go to HP or HPE, uh, enter my model number or perhaps serial number and gain access to downloadable installation media, or at least an option to perhaps order the media for a small fee. These were expensive enterprise machines after all, and there's one thing HP companies like HP are good at is supporting expensive enterprise stuff for a long time. I was wrong. First of all, there's no way to download HP UX at 10.20, 11.0, or 11iv1, also known as 11.11, .11, the versions of HP UX supported on my PA risk machine. On top of that, there is also no way to order installation media. In fact, there's no official way of procuring these versions of HP UX in any way, shape, or form. I even contacted HP specifically about this, but the communication petered out very prematurely. So I had no choice but to explore less legal means of getting HP UX. Archive.org was an obvious choice, but none of the 11.11 versions I found there seemed to work. I also tried various other avenues, but to no avail. Every few weeks or months, I would resume my search, but I never got any closer to a version of HP UX installation media capable of booting, booting and installing on my hardware. 18 months after having originally purchased the machine, I resorted to asking my f my new followers on Mastodon. Thanks, Emerald Boy. And the response was honestly overwhelming. I talked to everyone from fellow enthusiasts who were, who were digging through their CD ISO pals for me to former system administrators experienced with HPUX, all the way to former HP engineers who actually built and tested machines like mine back in the day. They were incredibly helpful, and I'm very grateful for all of their help, advice, stories, and tips. Some even went so far as to grant me access to HPUX ISOs they had stored on various private clouds so I could try those out. After lots of trying back and forth in some dark corner of the web, I found some ISOs that actually worked. I finally had working installation media. And then things got worse. My installation media was doubted in 2003 or 2004. But from my 18 months of researching on HPUX's 11.11 lifecycle, I knew there was a massive amount of patches I could apply to fix bugs, patch security holes, update certain open source tools, and so on. These patches were distributed in various forms over the years, usually on CD-ROMs and later DVDs. 
These were even harder to find than HP UX itself. Much like the operating system, HPE does not seem to list these patches anywhere, and there's pretty much no official documentation available. You have to do a lot of searching, digging, and collating from unofficial sources to get a vague grasp of what you need or what's applicable, and eventually I think I managed to get some grip on what I needed to look for. Much like with HPUX itself, I eventually managed to find the right support plus and hardware enablement ISOs through a combination of Arca.org spelunking through the private collections I was given access to. There was once a tool to download patches automatically from HP servers, HPUX Software Assistant, SWA, but I have no idea if it supported HPUX 11.11. Not that it matters, the tool is nowhere to be found, there's no documentation, and as far as I can gather, even if you were to find it and use it, HPE no longer serves the patches online anywhere, so you won't be able to use it. It's just another example of a major computer and software company not taking care of its heritage. Regardless, as far as I've determined through my research that my HP Visualize C3750 with its fancy 875MHz PA-RISC 8700+, PA-RISC processor, and upgraded to 3GB of RAM and fitted with the fastest GPU I could find at the time, the FX10 Pro, now runs the most up-to-date version of HP UX 11i V1 11.11, the last version this machine supports. With all the patches, no thanks to the company that actually made the hardware and the software. And then things got worse. Third-party software availability, a black hole. Once I had the hardware, the operating system, and all its various patches, it was time to find applications and programs to actually run on it. Working my way up from the bottom, I figured that I'd start getting some of the base open source tools we've come to expect from any HP, any Unix-like system. Luckily, I already discovered the HPUX porting and archive center, which is set up and maintained just to do that, to make public domain freeware and open source software more readily available to users of Hewlett Packard Unix systems. Sadly, it turns out the center simply does not have the means to support anything but the latest version of HPUX. In this case, HPUX 11iv3, running exclusively on Itanium 2. Any packages for older versions and architectures are either deleted, depreciated, or only downloadable manually. You can't use their handy dependency resolver and downloader script either. I understand this. The HPUX community is probably quite small, and building, maintaining, and serving these packages isn't free. I'm already thinking that I'm already thankful the center exists in the first place. And also, Itanium is still sorry. This is me. Itanium is still supported for another year or two by Intel, so there's probably still deployments of it. Anyway, Tom's aside over. Back to Tom's article. Uh, the next step up would be actual applications, the kind of software everyday users would use back in the day when these machines were new. Here things really started to get frustrating. I'm not going to detail every application I tried to get working and instead focus on two different ones that highlight the issues you run into very well, Pro Slash Engineer and Soft Windows. Pro Slash Engineer is a CAD software suite that was available on a variety of platforms including HP UX. I have no experience nor understanding of CAD and industrial design software, but I wanted to get it running just to get an idea of what such software would look like when my machine was new. Finding a copy of Pro Slash Engineer for Unix wasn't, isn't hard. Several versions are available on archive.org, including version 17, which I think might be the last version available for HP UX. Installing Pro Engineer 17 from the version uploaded to archive.org is a breeze, essentially for an older version of HP UX, but in my use of Hewlett Packard's Unix, 
I've learned it has excellent backward compatibility and any software that I've tried for versions 9 and 10 works also fine on 11i. Once you hit Pro Engineer's licensing step though, you hit a brick wall. Software like this doesn't use simple serial keys, instead it uses more complex licensing schemes and software. Of course, these licensing schemes have long since expired. There's no store to sell them. Even the demo option apparently had an end date and stopped working a long time ago. The company behind Pro Slash Engineer, PTC, still exists and sells a variety of professional CAD-related software packages. So I decided to contact them and see if we could work something out, such as maybe make a universal working license for these older versions that anybody could use. I got a reply from a sales rep interested in selling me the current version, and after restating my question in a follow-up, communication went dead. Another piece of software I was incredibly eager to try was something called Soft Windows. They'd probably break. Uh, Soft Windows was a software package that combined the Soft PC x86 emulator with a copy of Windows, allowing you to run software for Windows 3.x, 95, and 98 on top of the supported platforms, it, including the various commercial Unix variants. The company behind Soft PC and Soft Windows, Insignia, even entered an, into an exclusive agreement with Microsoft, whereby they gained access to the Windows source code to further improve their offering, their software offering. Microsoft made use of Soft PC, or at least parts of it, for the x86 compatibility layers in various early non-86 versions of Windows and NT. The first problem I ran into is that I could not find the version of Soft Windows for HPUX that came with Windows 95, which I think is the last version they made for the platform. I also tried to find Soft PC itself, but that provided futile as well. This Windows 95 version definitely existed. There's detailed documentation everywhere, but the software itself seems to have disappeared. This was a bummer and further illustrates the need for software preservation efforts. Luckily, an older version of Soft Windows for Unix can be found on archive.org, Soft Windows 2.0 for Unix. This version is a bit older and includes Windows 3.11 and MS-DOS 6.22. It can be installed on a variety of Unix variants, including HPUX. Even though this is technically designed for an older version of HPUX, it too installs without issue in HPUX 11. However, the keen-eyed among you might have noticed the ominous line in the archive.org listing. It uses FlexLM, so yeah, good luck. FlexLM is what is known as a software license manager. It's used by various software packages for Unix and other platforms to manage their licenses. The licenses could be locked to a single computer or distributed through a license server and allocated as needed. In the case of Soft Windows 2.0 for Unix, the Insignia Flex LX License Manager window pops up at the end of installation, and whenever you start Soft Windows asking for a serial number, an expiry date, and an authorization code. In order to get an authorization code as a single user, you had to complete your warranty card, add your serial number, Flex LM host ID, a unique identifier tied to your machine, and a server name, and fax it to Insignia, who would then provide you with an authorization code. It will come as no surprise that this no longer works. Not only do I have no, no clue how to send the fax, the listed numbers are from the 90s and no longer useful because Insignia no longer exists. It was acquired by a company called FWB Software in 1999, which seems to have ceased operations in 2002 or 2003. FlexLM, the license manager, went through a few different owners and ended up at Macrovision, who eventually spun FlexLM and related software office FlexERA, which still exists today. I think I've used FlexERA. Um, the most likely means that this most likely means that even if I somehow manage to find a person who holds the rights to soft PC and soft windows, either the original people from Insignia or the now defunct FWB software, they probably wouldn't be able to generate licenses anyway because they can't run the original licensing software side used to generate said licenses. 
Flexera, meanwhile, probably wouldn't be able to generate any soft Windows licenses either, since if they manage to run the original license software to generate a valid license, they don't own the rights to do so. In other words, it's stuck in limbo. ProEngineer and soft Windows are just two examples, but you run into similar problems with countless other commercial software packages. They're either impossible to find or impossible to license or both. This is an absolute shame since there's a ton of fascinating pieces of commercial software for these Unix workstations that played a huge role in all kinds of industries from animation to industrial engineering that have effectively disappeared into a black hole. There are other problems you run into when trying to explore the capabilities of HP UX too. The lack of accessible information for HP is always a massive problem. For instance, finding a version of Firefox that runs on HP 11.11 was difficult. I still don't know which version the last version was ever made and it took me a lot of spunking through dodgy FTP servers and God knows where else to stumble upon a HP UX depot of Firefox 3.5.9. It installs and runs flawlessly, but unsurprisingly has fallen victim to the TLS apocalypse. Worse yet, there are cases I know where HPX has amazingly cool abilities, but due to lack of documentation, information, and software from HP, I simply have no idea how to set that ability up, let alone use it. For instance, there's a lot of references to HP UX being able to use smart card readers and use a fingerprint scanners for authentication to log in. But what readers and scanners? How do you set us up? What software do I need? Who knows? HP UX can also be used to manage and run thin clients, but which models exactly? And how does that all work? Who knows? At this point, I doubt HP knows. This whole thing has been an unpleasant experience. It's left me bitter and frustrated that so much knowledge in the form of documentation, software tutorials, and drivers and so on is disappearing. Short-sightedness and disinterest, disinterest in our own heritage by big corporations um, is destroying entire swathes of software. And as more years pass by, it will get ever harder to get any of these things back up and running. But what I want HP to do? Not much. I'm not asking for the world. I'm not asking them to release HP UX's open source. It's never going to happen. Or to set up an entire sales channel for a few enthusiasts. All they need to do is dump some ISO files, patch depots, and other HP UX software alongside documentation on an FTP server so we can download it. That's all. This stuff has no commercial value. They're not losing any sales and it will barely affect their bottom line. If they want to get fancy about it, they can even set up a website to make it easier to find that stuff. But it's not necessary. They can go, go on archive.org. Would it kill them to perhaps send some financial port to the HP porting and HP UX porting and archive center? As for all the third party software, well, I'm afraid it's too late. Chasing it down the rights holders is already by is already an incredibly difficult task and even if you do find them they're not interested in helping you there's this idea that as long as someone still thinks of you if you're still in the thoughts of someone you're effectively immortal people like genghis khan julius caesar and that one pope who exhumed his predecessor to put his corpse on trial are immortal because we still think about them and we still write about them this doesn't apply to software we can think about it write about software all we want but if we can't run it it's dead and gone Software is dying off at uh, an alarming rate, and I fear there's no turning the tide of this mass extinction. I fell in love with HPUX. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was definitely a nice way of trying to go back and getting stuck at every, every point. Okay, the next thing is a bit more modern. Uh, it's about who are they? Determine who can log in to an SSH server. Uh, Filippo Valsardo has a neat SSH server that reports the GitHub username of the connecting client. Just SSH to whoami.filippo.io. Uh, that's one L and two Ps in Filippo. And if you're a GitHub user, there's a good chance it will identify you. This works because of two behaviors. First, 
GitHub publishes your authorized public keys at github.com slash username.keys. And second, your SSH client sends the server the public key of every one of your key pairs. So let's say you have a key pair of three, uh, foo, bar, and bass. The SSH public key authentication protocol works like this. A client, can I log in with public key foo? Server looks for foo in SSH authorized keys, finds no match. Server, no. Client, can I log in with public key bar? Server looks for bar in SSH authorized keys, finds no match. Server, no. Client, can I log in with public key bas? Server looks in bas, for bas in SSH authorized keys, finds an entry. Server, yes. Client, okay, here's a signature from private key bas to prove I own it. Okay, so who am I? Filippo.io works by taking each public key sent by the client and looking it up in a map from public key to GitHub username, which Filippo populated by crawling the GitHub API. If it finds a match, it tells the client the GitHub username. Like this, the client. Can I log in with public key foo? Server looks up foo, finds no match. Server, no. Client, can I log in with public key bar? Server looks up bar, finds no match. Server, no. Client, can I log in with public key bas? Server looks up bas, finds a match to user AGWA. Server, ah, you're AGWA. This works the other way as well. If you know that AGWA's public keys are foobar and bas, you can send each of them to the server to see if the server accepts any of them, even if you don't know the private keys. So here's uh, the thing that could be interesting. Client, can I log in with public key foo? Server, no. Client, can I log in with the key bar? Server, no. Client, can I log in with public key bask? Server, yes. Client, ah, ah, AGWA has an account on this server. So this has uh, several implications here. If you found a server that you suspect belongs to a particular GitHub user, you can confirm it by downloading their public keys and asking if the server accepts any of them. The second, uh, if you want to find servers belonging to a particular GitHub user, you could scan the entire IPv4 address space asking each SSA server if it accepts any of the user's keys. This wouldn't work with IPv6, at least not in the foreseeable time, but scanning every IPv4 host is definitely practical, as shown by MassScan and ZMap. That's a separate link for each of those. If you found a server and want to find out who controls it, you can try asking the server about every GitHub user's key until it accepts one of them. I'm not sure how practical this would be. Testing every GitHub user's keys would require sending an enormous amount of traffic to the server, but it's still a possibility. As a proof of concept, they've created Who Are They, a small Go program that takes the hostname and port combination of an SSH server, an SSH username, and a list of GitHub usernames, and prints out the GitHub username which authorizes or which is authorized to connect to the server. Uh, so they set up a test server and show how that might look like. And you can also use Who Are They with public keys files stored locally, in which case it prints the name of the public key file which is accepted. Okay. So not uh, or note that not just because a server accepts a key or claims to accept it, it doesn't mean that the holder of the private key authorized the server to accept it. They could take Filippo's public key and put it in their authorized keys files, making it look like Filippo controls the server. Therefore, this information leak doesn't provide incontrovertible proof of server control. Nevertheless, they think it's a useful way to de-anonymize a server and it concerns them much more than who am I to Filippo.io. They only, uh, or they only SSH to servers which already know who they are, and I'm not, or they are not worried about being tricked into connecting to a malicious server. 
It's not like the web where it's trivial to make someone visit a URL. However, uh, they do have accounts on a few servers which are not otherwise linkable to them. And came to them as an unpleasant surprise that anyone could be able to learn that they have an account just by asking an SSH server. So the simplest way to thwart who are they would be for SSH servers to refuse to answer if a particular public key would be accepted. Instead, make clients pick a private key and send the signature to the server. Although they don't know of any SSH servers that can be configured to do this, it could be done with the bounds of the current SSH protocol. The user experience would be the same for people who use a single key pair uh, they want to use for each server. Or the client would have to try every key, which might require the user to enter a passphrase or press a physical button for each attempt, uh, like a, uh, for or to prevent a timing leak, so it would verify the signature against the public key provided by the client before checking if this public key is authorized. Otherwise, who are they could determine if a public key is authorized by sending an invalid signature and measuring how long it takes the server to reject it. There is a more complicated solution requiring protocol changes and fancier cryptography that leverages private set intersection to thwart both who are they and who am I.philippo.io. That's also a separate link. However, this treats SSH keys as encryption keys instead of signing keys, so it wouldn't work with hardware back keys like the YubiKey. And it requires the client to access the private key for every key pair, not just the one accepted by the server. So the user experience for multi-key users would be just as bad with this simple solution. Until one of the above solutions is implemented, be careful if you administer any service which you don't want linked to you. You could use unique key pairs for such servers or keep SSH firewalled off from the internet and connect over a VPN. If you do use a unique key pair, make sure your SSH client never tries to send it to other servers. A less benign version of whoamite.philippo.io could save the public keys that it says and then feeds them to who are they to find your servers. Mm, yeah, interesting way of uh, finding out who is who. Okay, things keep happening. I, I ask them to stop, but they keep going. Uh, and we talk about we call these things news. And so this week we have a roundup of news. And first up, we have an article by um, someone, someone with a name beginning with a B uh, over at clarasystems.com. Um, FreeBSD versus Linux. Five factors when considering FreeBSD versus Linux. Packages. I think this is Benedict. Yeah, it must be me. Yeah, I remember writes, writing this. <laughs> package managers on various Unix distributions make it easy for system administrators to manage the software installed on the operating system. Packages are an easy, straightforward way to, to there's a typo. Packages are an easy, straightforward way to install software that avoids time consuming configure compile install sequences. The popularity of package managers permeates all Unix distributions, yet there are supple, subtle differences between the approaches in FreeBSD versus Linux that take in handling packages. How does Linux compare to FreeBSD's way of managing packages? Package managers in a nutshell. A package manager helps with finding, downloading, installing, configuring, updating, and removing third-party applications in a Unix system. There is not. This is not too different when looking at Linux versus FreeBSD. A typical invocation starts with the package manager's name. Uh, for example, apt or pkg or opackage or package or pack. There's like 400 tools called package. Um, followed by a subcommand detailing the action to perform. 
package managers typically maintain uh, local cache of available packages and their current versions, which they periodically synchronize with the package repository. This allows users to find and install new software, perform simple version upgrades of the existing packages, and maintain compatibility with operating system libraries and other dependencies for a specific OS. How do they differ? Number one, FreeBSD's single source versus Linux's diversity. The FreeBSD port committers create and maintain packages of third-party software and published by vendors and make them available to users. The project's infrastructure provides them with an effortless way of building and distributing the packages via the package command. A global distributed mirror network provides the packages for automatic download and installation using the package install command. This makes it easy for FreeBSD users to get started right away. Um, with 57,000 plus software packages available. Uh, although package management under Linux is generally similar, the package landscape is more diverse, which is not always a good thing. Each Linux distro provides its own collection of software in various versions with varying layers of support provided directly by the distribution. In addition, many distributions, uh, such as Ubuntu and Arch, offer third-party package repositories this allows vendors or interested users to make their own packages widely available using the distribution's tooling without much direct support by the management by the distribution itself. Many software vendors publish on their own website for various Linux distributions, such as Ubuntu, Debian, or Red Hat. Many software vendors publish software on their own website for various popular Linux distributions like Ubuntu, Debian, or Red Hat. Although this can increase the total amount of software available, there are several catches to this approach. Vendors who provide their own direct downloads may refuse to support distribution, repackaging, while the distro itself refuses to support the vendor's original code. Software downloaded directly from the vendor, even when provided in a distribution's native package format. It can be very confusing for users to figure out what software to download and install. Vendor-provided software might be in a native package format like .deb, a package format not supported by the user's distro like deb.deb, but on Red Hat. Uh, or even a tarball, which must be manually built by the user. In FreeBSD, a port maintainer takes care of managing the software work for, on FreeBSD. A package is built via a makefile-based infrastructure, abstracting away all the steps of fetching, configuring, building, and installing the software. Most vendors do not provide FreeBSD packages. Instead, they either provide a package install command and refer, or you refer the user to a port where there is no pre-built package available. Factor two, separation between base OS and third-party applications. Another difference when looking at FreeBSD versus Linux packages is the path of the installed binaries and configuration files. The BSDs have kept a hard and fast rule from early on that distinguish application paths between the ones that OS provides itself and those coming from third parties. Although Linux theoretically uses the same distinctions, in practice, they're only loosely adhered to. Look at the ETC directory, for example. It holds many different configuration files provided by the operating system, but where do configuration files for third-party applications end up? This is where systems like FreeBSD make a distinction. Application and configuration files end up under slash user local etc, while Linux also puts them in slash etc intermingled with the base system's configuration files. This lack of clearly defined boundary between base system and installed applications becomes problematic when external applications overwrite pre-existing config files from the operating system. This is often solved by a subdirectory under etc with the same name of the application. This might sound like a solution in BSDs also create a subdirectory, but under user local etc. Factor three, package availability between FreeBSD and Linux. 
New software is usually packaged first for major Linux distributions because of their popularity and large user base. This is a drawback for FreeBSD because most software vendors do not include a version for any BSD. Therefore, software must be ported to FreeBSD, and this is often where the name ports comes from. A port committer or maintainer's first task is often to find ways to de-Linuxify software originally developed for a particular Linux environment. Sometimes this can be as simple as changing paths um, to the prefix user local as for the installed destination. In other cases, more effort is required. This may include, for example, selecting different dependencies during the build process, changing compiler time flags and arguments, or modifying how an application interacts with the OS kernel. Many such modifications are sent upstream to the originating project for inclusion in future versions. This eases the ongoing maintenance burden for FreeBSD. Getting an OS detection if def approved upstream once is much easier than repeatedly patching the software for each new release. Once software has been initially ported, the resulting upgrade to a higher version is normally simple in comparison, barring any major rewrite or truckloads of new features. For popular software like Firefox, you'll find the latest version to be the same as on other Linux distributions offer appearing on the same day, all thanks to the help of the ports team. And what do you do when there is no port or package? There's the Linux Ulator. The Linux Ulator on FreeBSD is an application binary interface which allows software designed to run under the Linux kernel to work on FreeBSD without direct modification. There are instances where porting is too difficult. Um, proprietary software, uh, which is distributed as binary only with no access to the source code, or the complexity or pace of development of a project may be too fast for a FreeBSD port maintainer to keep up with. This is where the Linux Ulator comes in. It runs unmodified pa packages built on a Linux distro in the same way that Valve's well-known Proton layer allows unmodified Windows games to run on their Linux. Factor four, what's in the package? And another point to consider in the comparison between um, Linux and FreeBSD packages is the way packaged software is configured. OS packages bundle certain applications which may have certain options that the user can decide to include or not. When a FreeBSD port is compiled, a menu will let the user select which of the options are enabled during compilation and build time, even for any existing dependencies. By contrast, packages are pre-built, so it's too late for the user to change and select their own compile time options. For increased compatibility, FreeBSD packages are built with conservative options in mind. This may or may not suit your needs, but it ensures that many systems will run packages without pulling in too many additional dependencies and features that not everyone will use. LDAP uh, is an example of one of these differences between ports and packages. In corporate environment, FreeBSD users will have to include LDAP support to connect to local directories for name lookups and passwords. Since not everyone has an LDAP server, the standard package doesn't include an LDAP dependency, so companies which have LDAP managed environments must build their own custom packages with the options they need. FreeBSD's own Poudriere build tool uh, allows building packages uh, and enabling custom packages even when newer versions are released. To distribute those packages within the corporate network, a new package source created by Poudriere is added to ETC package in order to prioritize locally built versions over ones in FreeBSD's repositories. Linux also provides tools to build packages when necessary. This is needed when a library is missing or does not have the required version, especially when older software is downloaded from a vendor on a newer distribution. It may be that bundled dependencies don't work anymore. The author uh, has been to more than one application training course where to the actual training couldn't begin until resolution of dependency issues for various distributions had been covered. In recent years, many Linux distributions have taken great care to avoid that by providing long-term support versions of their software 
That way, users can stay with one operating system version while the applications running on it are receiving updates until the OS's end of life. Factor 5, update frequency. FreeBSD package users can decide between bleeding edge packages with the latest branch or slower update paced with the quarterly branch. Each approach has both pros and cons. Both quarterly and latest package branches receive security updates. Quarterly packages are intended for long-term stable usage where, where chasing the newest software versions is not desired. The latest branch by contest is intended for users who always want the latest software. On various Linux distributions, both packages and distribution itself may be divided into categories such as stable, main, unstable, testing, and so forth. The exact list of categories is different everywhere. On FreeBSD, the user can only run one of two. Uh, if the system uses quarterly packages, the default, and switches to the latest package branch, packages get updated when there are new versions available. On the other hand, switching from latest to quarterly may result in some packages being downgraded as only older versions are available on those branches. And in conclusion, although Linux has a greater amount of software available from both commercial and open source uh, vendors, FreeBSD's package availability continues to rise steadily. In environments where custom packages with non-standard compile time options are necessary, FreeBSD's excellent port system and Pudrier automated build system can also be as or more important than the number of pre-built packages available. FreeBSD's quarterly and latest package branches offer a simple and straightforward experience for both bleeding edge users and those wanting to have an easier pace FreeBSD's clear distinction between base system and package installation packages under user local ensures stability on the OS as it won't be updated and, and trashed by third-party software. Hmm. Thanks, Benedict. Yep. So there's more articles at Clara's website, of course, So, and there will be more coming in the future, so check back later. Uh, this next item uh, goes a little bit again with SSH. We have a visual guide for you to SSH tunnels, local and remote port forwarding. Uh, can you never remember like which goes first, the local port or the remote port or the remote address? It's just confusing. Maybe it's only me, but uh, on this one, we have a nice visual guide. And it's part of a computer networking fundamental series, and the other parts are also available. And they pretty much have it nicely illustrated, showing you which part is the server, which is the uh, tunnel part, which is the local uh you know, section of that. And that definitely shows you how it's done. And hopefully you remember it by just having the picture in your mental uh, mind's eye available next time. <laughs> Visual guides don't really work on a podcast. Yeah, they're kind of... So we have you uh, just click the link in our show notes and then you'll see what we're getting at. Uh, this next part is from Peter Henstein, harvesting noise while it's fresh uh, revisited. He's looking at a year's worth of, of logs yielding entertaining but unsurprising findings about spammer behavior. And this is yet another great article by him. I encourage you to read it whole. And he's looking at his results from his spam trapping efforts and what kind of information he gets out of that. It's certainly uh, worth looking at. Okay, and then last up, we have uh, a translated from German article um, on Bastille. Uh, Bastille, the FreeBSD jail manager on Bastille, the jail manager on FreeBSD. Um, Bastille is a lean open source manager for jails, i.e. containers under FreeBSD. In a previous article, Jails on FreeBSD 13, I already wrote about how, about, I already wrote about how to create jails on FreeBSD without additional software. In this post, however, I'll provide a basic understanding of how to create jails with Bastille. Compared to other jail managers, Bastille 
uh, convinces in every respect. The software has no dependencies, which means no additional software needs to be installed to get Bastille up and running. To get a detailed overview of why Bastille is superior, you can take a closer look at the comparison here. Also, while I'm not 100% sure, Bastille is the only active jail manager project at the moment. That can be true. Although anyone who's previously worked with IOCage and EasyJail can also transfer the jails to Bastille. But enough pre-joints, let's get started. And then follows is a full tutorial on getting set up with Bastille, which is uh, quite good. Um, I've wrote an article for Clara about Bastille and it was quite fun to use. Um, so if you're interested in managing more jails, you should go and check this out. Yep, there's plenty of cool stuff there and it's fairly easy uh, to get started with it. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you can find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. And so normally at this point in the podcast, we would be um, bemoaning the lack of questions <laughs> or going to some questions. Um, but we do have questions. They're just they're just hidden. We've, we've lost them. Um, our wonderful producer, JT, um, because he does not have any insulation in his walls, has fled his home to avoid a storm. Um, and he left the questions in his home, um, wrapped around the pipes to make sure they don't freeze. Uh, and so we don't have any for the show notes today. But in the future, once the the thaw kicks in and the ice breaks, temperatures rise, we'll be able to unwrap these these incredible questions uh, and come and ask and come and bring them to us, and we can answer them. I heard there were some wonderful comments. Um, there was a link to a massive archive of HPUX software that I can't wait to share, but. Uh, for now, it's yeah. excellent. Yeah, so we have a little cliffhanger for you. Hopefully, not too long until maybe next week, where you can tune in again, and we'll be back with a fresh episode for you. Bye.